Similar New Testament vein, deacons are to be, remember this, tested. First Timothy chapter 3. Why? Isn't it so that their blamelessness can be established? In a sense, not just for deacons, but for all Christians, testing is part and parcel of how someone grows. In their case, it's for how someone becomes qualified. And it's that something of today as we return to the story of Joseph. Now the, the brothers had come before Joseph in Egypt once more, this time bringing Benjamin along. And in doing this, they're taking the task that has been crafted and given by Joseph. It's a test designed to see if his brothers have truly changed. That brings up the question of every test, doesn't it? Will they pass? What does that mean for our own We see that in Genesis chapter 44 this morning. So if you've got a Bible or, or grab one out of the back of the pew in front of you if you need one or browse there, but get to Genesis chapter 44. Let's see the word of the Lord preserved for us, for our good, for His purpose. Here's how we begin. Then he commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sacks with food, as much as they could get, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack, and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. Uh, they had gone only a short distance from the city. Now, Joseph said to his steward, Up, follow after the men. And when you overtake them, say to them, well, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks? And by this that he practices divination? You have done evil through the past. When he overtook them, he spoke to them these words. They said to him, Why does my Lord speak such words as these? 
far be it from the servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die, and we also will be my Lord's heirs. He said, Let it be as you say. He who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack. And so, beginning with the eldest, and ending with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. We begin with Joseph's plan. Joseph has his chief steward place a, a valuable cup, Joseph's own cup, in the bag of Benjamin, the youngest of the brothers. And the point is going to come when the brothers are, you know, they're, they've got all they need, they're, they're on their way out of Egypt, and the discovery of the is going to be an excuse to bring them back before Joseph. Right? So that's his plan, that's his plot that he's working out here. So Joseph lets his brothers get a head start there in the morning, and he sends his steward after them with the accusation. But Joseph somehow mystically knows that they've stolen from him. Right? This is all part of the story that Joseph is concocting. Uh, the brothers, for their part, previous visit back with them, assuming it was some sort of mistake that it had been given to them, why would they resort to theft then, especially at this point? Now, as the story goes, the cup is eventually discovered. It's discovered in Benjamin, the youngest's bag, and that provides the first test here of Joseph's plan. What are the other brothers going to do? Will they abandon Benjamin, thinking little of him, just like they thought so little of Joseph years ago? I mean, after all, Joseph's servant here is only saying, did you notice? It was very clear. I only want the one who has the cup. The rest of you are innocent. You are free to go. No obligation. And yet, time we get to verse 13, we're seeing different brothers, aren't we? Right? They've grown. Rather than continuing on their journey or maybe even trying to find some way to, you know, to get Benjamin out of this mess without endangering themselves or, you know, not even, well, we'll just leave him there. We'll go home. We'll talk with Dad. We'll come up with a plan. Rather than any of those things, anything that we have seen before, they all end up going back with Benjamin with the servants before Joseph. Now, it should strike you that the brothers did not have to do that. I mean, sure, they made promises to their father about protecting Benjamin, but then again, they had said all kinds of stuff to, you know, to Joseph years ago. Truly, the Lord has begun to change these people. Right? Dare I say they, they felt guilt 
And we've seen little hints of that, haven't we, over the last few chapters? And that guilt has had a big effect on us. That normally, you and I are told that guilt is this terrible thing. That's what our society tells us. That if you have any feelings of guilt whatsoever, that that's bad, you need to get rid of it. It's someone putting that pressure on you. And sometimes that's true, isn't it? But not always. Right? There are certainly burdens that we unnecessarily carry, but when it comes to sin, sometimes guilt and regret can be the very tools that the Lord would use to change us, to, to bring us to repentance and to eventual joy and freedom. I want you to keep that in mind as we continue, because it's this guilt that the Lord is using to change these brothers, to turn them from their wicked ways. Sometimes what we think is bad can actually be used for good. For now, though, let's see where things go when these brothers are brought before Joseph once more. Uh, look at verse 14. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. Joseph said to them, What deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me would do righteous divination? And Judah said, What shall we say, my lord? Or what shall we speak? Or, or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my lord's servants, both we and he also, in whose hand the cup has been found. But he said, Far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my son. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. The brothers' apology. And the brothers come back before Joseph, and he continues this, this charade. Right? This charade of, well, one, not knowing him as a brother. But also, secondly, of being able to, to magically know what the brothers have done. And how do they respond? With fear. And not only fear of Joseph, but did you notice? Fear of God. Because they believe that it's the Lord who's allowing all of these bad things, all of these bad events, to happen to them. Rather than trying to get out of this situation by cutting their losses. Benjamin behind. I mean, that's what the servant of uh, Joseph, they keep trying to kind of push the brothers. Oh, you could get out of this, you know. No, instead, the brothers are willing to become servants of Joseph. I'm not sure there's clear evidence of how they have been changed. And this provides the second and, and ultimate challenge. Would the brothers leave Benjamin behind? Right? Would they throw in the towel, run home, caring little for Benjamin if they had for Joseph? Had their character changed? You might say it another way. Will they take the, the out that Joseph is offering them? The quick and easy path rather than the sacrificial path. That's the test. That's the challenge. And I wonder... If you were involved in a, uh, 
a dire situation, maybe somewhat like this one, and and you were given wouldn't it be awfully tempting to take it? I mean, even if it would mean leaving someone else behind, wouldn't it be awfully tempting to go around a trial rather than through it? I suspect we all have been tempted in that way in some situation, whether large or small. And it's not too different from what Jesus himself experienced and spoke of in Matthew chapter 26. Now, Peter had just managed to cut off the ear of a servant of those in that crowd who had come to arrest Jesus in the garden. And the Lord's reply was to tell him to put the sword away. Now, this wasn't just on account of Peter's poor swordsmanship. Hey, you're aiming for the head and all you got is a spear. I mean, Peter, come on. Get the shot. No, it's not just that. Instead, Christ explains. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and He will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? Right? In other words, if Jesus had wanted to avoid arrest, if He had wanted to, to get out of that trial somehow, He could have easily done so. It wouldn't have even taken any effort. And yet he did not. Our Lord chose to go through the trials, not, not around them. He didn't avoid them. And in doing so, just like with us, what Christ accomplished on the cross brought to every believer the, the greatest good that you or I could ever receive. Friends, we can be eternally grateful that Jesus went through the test. It's because Jesus did that that we have forgiveness with God, that we have salvation leading to eternal life. And it's all because Jesus didn't take the hour. Apart from his faithfulness, you and I would have no hope whatsoever. But what about these brothers? I mean, none of them are Jesus. I think we've established that and made it pretty clear. And it's not even to mention you or I. As as wonderful as each of you are, you're not Jesus. I'm not Jesus. What will we see about our Lord in the actions of these flawed brothers, these people not too different from us? read this last portion of the chapter to find out. Look at verse 18. And Judah went up to him and said, Oh, my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears, and let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or, or a brother? father, 
and then you send your servant. I can match your youngest brother from town with you, and you shall not see my face again. When they went back, your servant, my father, retold him the words of my Lord. And then our father said, go again and buy us a little food. But we said, oh, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we'll go down. But we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, Surely he has been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs of evil to Sheol. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the, the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. The servant took in a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back to his friends. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? And here to see the evil that would come to my father. Judas leaves. Right? It's very formal, isn't it? I realize it's, it's even kind of confusing with a lot of the, you know, my Lord and my servant, your servant. What's going on? Well, first you need to note who's speaking. Who has approached Joseph? It's Judah. Right? The same Judah who was involved in that despicable situation with Tamar a number of chapters. The same Judah who came up with the plan, do you remember this? to sell Joseph into slavery, right? The, the same Judah who had this whole, hey, let's, let's lie to dad and, and we'll tell him some wild animal got him. And, right? That's the Judah who is now interceding for Benjamin's life. This Judah is being transformed by the Lord. He had promised his father that he would see to Benjamin's family. And now he's doing exactly that. Judah's doing is absolutely amazing. His offer to Joseph is that Benjamin be set free. He would go along with the remaining brothers, and instead, Judah himself would remain as the servant, in essence, as the slave. Right? It's trading one life for another, which is not something Joseph would have thought Judah was even capable of. And what's more, Judah's offer is based on two things that we might have thought missing from his character. His word and the character of his father. Isn't it amazing what the Lord can do? How the Lord can change this wretched man into now this nice, loving brother. Now, we're going to come to a big turn in the story next week. And our chapter kind of leaves us off here at a cliffhanger, but let's not run ahead. Sometimes I think we run ahead in the story, 
just because we, you know, we're Americans. We like the big, you know, glorious finish. Everything works out well. Sometimes in doing that, we miss crucial points along the way. There are two that we need to see here from this chapter. And the first is this. God can change anybody. God can change anybody. It's possible for even the most vile and wicked person to be transformed into somebody through the pattern of Christ. You don't have to look far in history to see that. Whether it's serial killers who come to Christ while in prison, whether it is some of the most wretched and evil you know, warlords and soldiers, whether it's, well, John Newton, the slave trader, whether it's Paul of Tarsus, one who sought to not only persecute Christians, but even stood by approving as one of those first Christians was killed. But God can use anyone. Maybe you don't think so. Right? Maybe you've taken on the cynical, jaded view of this world. It wouldn't be hard. I mean, aren't we all tempted that way, uh, assuming that people don't really change deep down? I mean, isn't that the sort of narrative that keeps coming out whenever there's a scandal in the news these days? Oh, you know, they, they seem to have a good face, but, you know, deep down, this really could not change. Right? And our culture has this knowing phrase. Oh, no, no one changes. People just are as they are. There's a problem with that, though. It's completely unbiblical. It's completely untrue. Yes, I realize perhaps some great work has been done to you. Maybe there's a wound that has not healed. Perhaps bitterness has resulted that you think might protect you from future wounds, but if you've lived with that for long, you know it doesn't. You know, the only one bitterness actually hurts is you. I've been there. Sure, a number of you have also. And as Christians, we are to be defined by our hope in Christ. And that hope involves the fact that He's changed us, that He's transformed us. And if that's what He's done for you, then why would we ever think that He couldn't work the same sort of change in somebody else's life? Take a moment and think deeply. Who have you given up hope to? Uh, who do you think, you know, of all your friends, family, co-workers, fellow students, you know, people out in the community, folks you have to deal with, who do you think cannot be changed? Who do you have very little hope for? Bring that person to the Lord in prayer. And bring your own self to asking the Lord to help you see them with the same eyes as He sees them. And you know what, friends? In fact, let's do that right now. Let's just take a few moments. Whatever that name or face that comes to mind, why don't you pray for them right now before we continue?
second and finally, we need to see that what Judah is offering in human terms is what Jesus, our Savior, has actually done for everyone who trusts him. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. He was buried. He rose on the third day. He has promised to return for us. We read in the scriptures, he's even now at work preparing a place for us. So what Judah points to isn't simply a concept or an idea. It's not just to give honor or because he's chivalrous or something like that. No, Judah points us to a, he points us to a who. He points us to our Savior. The one who has not only offered, but even made this prayer for those who trust in him. Is that you? Is it really you? Do you actually trust Jesus as the one who has paid your price with his very life? Is there any fruit that you can point to that's evidence of being transformed? The Bible tells us to examine ourselves to see whether we are in the faith. How do we do that? Look at your life. How has God transformed you? How is there an abiding joy and security and identity in your heart of being loved and transformed by Jesus? And if so, no matter how small, isn't that cause for worship and for hope and for trust? But what if not? What if the, the secret that you harbor right now is Pastor, I'd never say this out loud, but I am seeing through it. Why not? If you haven't trusted Christ, then who else will stand in your place for your sins? Who else will voluntarily give himself for you? And if you do trust Christ, then what belief do you need to fight for this very week that perhaps you haven't fought for before? Oh, what do you need to call upon the Lord to change in your mind, in your heart, that hasn't yet quite grasped on to trust of your Savior in this way? Now, friends, there, there's a call to obedience here, to be sure. I don't want to minimize that. But my questions aren't so much about works as they are about faith. They're not so much about what you should be doing as about how you should be responding with obedience, with worship, with love, with joyful gratefulness to our Savior, our Savior who changes people like us, those around us in our world, people like you, people who need the work of the Lord in their lives. That's worth worshiping him for, isn't it? Let's make a start of that together as we close our service here in prayer and then in song. And Heavenly Father, you are the God who has the power and the authority and the plan to change anybody. There is none of us who has somehow out-sinned the gospel there's no one who has outmaneuvered your grace. 
there is no sin which is more powerful than your forgiveness given to us in Christ. And Lord, that is great news because there is nothing else in our lives, no one else who can free us from what ails us. And so, Lord, would you make us thankful people this morning, grateful at what you have already begun in each of our lives, trusting in what you will bring through completion in the day of the Lord. And Father, as you grow our trust, would you have it lodged so deeply down in our hearts that as we look at those around us, those who have wronged us, those who have done things that are truly wicked by every measure of your word, we ask that you would make us not, not naive to want to be wise, but we ask that you would make us loving in the pattern of Christ. Not cynical, not bitter, not thinking that there's no hope, but instead believing that there's all and every hope. Not by our works, but by yours. Would you have us believe in a great big Savior whose grace Savior is Jesus, and it's in his name that we pray.